Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Shares for beginners. In the 70s, there were these smarts that were doing all the work and they tended to make the money off the retail people that didn't understand yeah. things. And, and so there was a transfer of money from the, the dumb money, so to speak, to the smart money. These days, 99% of all trades that happen on share markets is just the smart money trading against the smart money. So, you know, with the analogy of poker, you're sitting at a poker table and everyone is a poker shark. And so it's very hard to make the easy dollars and ultimately luck becomes a much bigger factor. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. New investors often find the pathway into the share market confusing and generally overwhelming. There's so many products, services, advisors, glossy brochures and websites. My guest today believes that it doesn't have to be difficult. Hello, Chris. Hi, Phil. Thanks for coming around. Finally, we get together. Yeah, my <laughs> After all these years. Chris Breike is the founder and CEO at RoboAdvisor Stockspot. Chris has over 25 years of investment experience and spent most of his early career as a portfolio manager at UBS. So tell us about those early years. Sure. Well, Phil, they were very different to what I'm doing now. I mean, yeah. I started my career really in share trading. So I, from a very young age, was very interested in the markets. Were you a broker? No, never a broker. So yeah, during school, I entered off in these share competitions and, you know, was more interested in the trading side rather than, you know, providing stock tips to other people. I love sort of managing that portfolio yourself, managing the risk, you know, working out what to buy and sell. And yeah, I was lucky the sort of early experience I got sort of trading during high school translated into a, you know, what I thought was an awesome graduate job, which was working at UBS on their proprietary trading desk. Mm -hmm. A bit different to their client facing business where you're providing advice to clients. We were managing the bank's balance sheet um, and had the opportunity to yeah construct portfolios and, and trade shares 
options, all sorts of other funky instruments, ultimately to make money. So it was a great eye opener in terms of how markets worked. Is that what they call prop trading? Yeah, you're just trading. Get, they're so, just putting up the money and they're getting people to trade and see how they go? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a bit it's different. It's a bit of a fight, a, fight club for uh, traders, is it? Well, it's a bit different to a fund yeah. where you have to raise the capital and you're sort of yeah. managing investor money. Like here, you're managing the balance sheet of a business. So you, you are allocated capital and you charge for that capital. And then you're measured based on the, yeah. you know, the risk-adjusted returns that you're generating. It's definitely an industry that's changed a lot over the last 20 years. So after the financial crisis and the Mm -hmm. Volcker rules in the US, a lot of the US investment banks stopped doing it. Um, We were lucky. We were at a Swiss bank, UBS, and they kept on going for a few more years. Um, But ultimately, then they stopped um, in 2012 or so. Yeah. So what period was this? Did you go through the financial crisis? Yeah. So I started as a graduate just before the financial crisis. So I I saw... Baptism of fire. Exactly. I mean, here I heard great stories of some of my mentors that started back in 1987. And just before that big, you know, crash episode, I started in 2007, you know, got to see as an intern, just the last bit of that boom the big exuberance, all the big bonuses, all these share prices going up and up and up. And then my graduate experience was basically starting, you know, on the ground floor in 2008. So we had graduate training in London and we were sent over there. And it was such a memorable experience because on our first day we arrived and none of the trainers were there who were all internal UBS people. Um, And HR got up and said, I'm sorry, like all the people we had organized for you here today can't come because Lehman's has just gone bankrupt. Um, (laughs) And we need to work out what's going on in in the world. And so it was a very weird grad training because they'd already paid for all of these fancy, you know, events for us and training and, you know, restaurants and get togethers and the world was just falling apart. (laughs) And I remember on that grad training, I called my boss, you know, back in Sydney and and it wasn't looking good. They were already making redundancies in Australia. And I said, honestly, can you let me know if I'm going to be made redundant because I'd like to travel around Europe if I am and I'm already over here. So, you know, it would be better for me if I could just stay over here. And he honestly said, um, Chris, I'm not sure. It's probably 50-50 at the moment. So you better come back and and see. And and I think I was one of the lucky ones just because I was, you know, a junior and and um, yeah, able, able to do a lot of the grunt work in that team. They kept me on and I was yeah very thankful for it. So it must have been a, an interesting experience. I mean, just to experience the fear close up. Has that affected the way that you think about investing? Yeah, I mean, it was fear, but also we saw it as opportunity. So when you're trading or managing a portfolio, um, especially a portfolio where you can actually benefit if things are falling, you're not really as fearful as just trying to understand and unpack what's going on and, and work out what the opportunities were. And there was all sorts of opportunities, you know, between different asset classes that were trading in in a way that didn't make sense or, you know, between different industries or sectors. And so, you know, as much as the world was sort of falling apart for traders that actually had access to capital, it was actually a good time. And it feels bad to say that because the world was falling apart. But yeah. usually when there's high volatility, trading businesses tend to do quite well because their whole their whole job is to make the most of opportunities in those times. And so, yeah, it was very fast paced. You know, my job at that point in time was actually doing the arbitrage between different Australian companies listed on other markets. And by that, I had to trade companies like BHP that were listed in other markets like the US and the UK and try and trade the price between all those different countries to make a profit. And so I was getting up at like 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., you know, in the middle of the night, trying to understand what was going on in the UK and the US and whether there was any trading opportunities. And yeah, as someone that was young and very excited to see what was going on, it was it was a really... Um, Must have been a fantastic know, experience. Fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it was tough at the same time because, yeah, the bank was letting go of lots of people. Yeah. We weren't sure if our jobs were going to stick around. And, you know, there's a great scene in the big short for the listeners that have seen that movie. They'll remember where Steve Carell and his team, who I think worked at the Morgan Stanley proprietary trading team, they'd ultimately done very well. They'd predicted this mortgage crisis. They'd predicted the crash. But then they came to this realization moment that even if they had done very well, they might all just lose their jobs and see nothing from it because, you know, their risk was actually their employment risk. And we all were feeling that day to day. You know, we didn't know when our jobs were going to end and we were just trying to do our best like everyone else. But Mm. um, yeah, it was great to have the opportunity to learn about what was going on because at the same time, all of these Aussie companies were getting recapitalized. You know, I thought it was fascinating that the property sector, the REIT sector in Australia, went through an enormous recapitalization process where they had to raise a huge amount of capital because they were over leveraged. And really, that REIT sector in Australia fell by close to 90%, which, you know, I think for anyone thinking of investing into real estate or REITs now probably doesn't appreciate that even an asset that seems very safe like real estate, you know, with poorly managed leverage can actually turn into a disaster. It's always good to hear about something from an expert like this, because we've covered a concept there that um, the real estate investment trusts had to be capitalised because they had too much debt. Does that mean that it was just costing them too much money to pay the debt and their balance sheets were falling over and they had to get the capital from somewhere else? I mean, it was a combination. So yes, to to some extent, I think a lot of them were hitting their debt covenants. So they're basically, there are rules that the people providing, you know, loans and debt to these REITs required them to meet. And if they couldn't meet them, they um, had to raise capital. You know, what was discovered in that period was that some of these covenants actually related to how much equity there was in the business. And so um, it led to a bit of a snowball effect that as the equity value kept on shrinking, it was actually causing the debt covenants to be hit, which, you know, So is that directly um, related to the share price? As yeah, well? exactly. Yeah. So you found that there were these hedge funds out there and a lot of them in the US that identified this as an opportunity and were selling the share prices, yeah. knowing that the lower they went, the more the companies were getting squeezed and forced to raise capital, which was actually supporting their trade thesis. Mm. And so- yeah, I mean, it, it, I think exposed a lot of structural risks in that sector that, um, you know, I hope now have been addressed. Yeah, certainly no company should be in a position where their share price, you know, falling basically causes them to default on their debt. But that was happening a lot. Yeah. Oh, it's always good to know these kind of insights, especially when, you, as you say, people think as property as being safe. Yeah, I think property, I think, is, a, you know, an asset generally that's safe, but leverage is the thing that makes yeah, it unsafe. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I worry about within the super industry in Australia mm. is that, you know, a lot more money these days is getting invested into assets like real estate and infrastructure. They seem like safe assets and they yeah. are until you add a lot of cheap debt to those assets. And a lot of debt has been added over the last few years to some of these safe assets to juice up their returns because adding debt does help equity holders earn more. The problem is when the cost of servicing that debt increases, which we're likely to see over the next few years, it can cause the opposite to happen and and then the equity values can fall quite drastically. Okay, well, let's move on to StockSpot. What was it like starting StockSpot? When did you start it and what was the process? I mean, it was a long process. You know, I was going from a world of, you know, working in a financial institution that was a very large one with tens of thousands of employees to becoming a lone ranger, trying to navigate the world of starting a business. And a Um, fintech startup as well. Yeah. I mean, this was um, before fintech was a word, Phil. So I was sitting at home trying to work out where this company kind of fit in the world. But you know, so many of these other industries in the world had moved to being digital online and really created great customer experiences. But to get great 
investing advice, you know, it was it was still quite archaic. You had to see an advisor and a broker go into their office. You know, there wasn't a lot of consistency in the sort of advice people were getting. And so, you know, I saw an opportunity really from a lot of the questions I was getting from friends and family on how to invest, that there was a need for people to get good investment advice. And, you know, for people that aren't in finance to be able to easily manage a, a sensible portfolio that was a sensible portfolio, not taking a lot of risk, you know, not gambling, actually an investment portfolio. So the first year was really me navigating the environment of how do you set up a business? You know, how do you navigate the regulatory environment? Obviously, financial service is highly regulated. And in starting a new business, that's not like anything that's ever been done before, because we wanted to provide personal advice to each client using essentially a machine. It took a lot of conversations with different people in the industry, um, including ASIC, the regulator. I, you know, remember flying to Melbourne a few times to explain to them what I wanted to do and ultimately try and convince them that it was a good product for consumers. Was there a model in the United States that um, you based this on? Yeah, there was. And that's what gave me probably more confidence to start the business. You know, I'd sort of imagined there was some sort of business opportunity to help people manage ETF portfolios. I thought Mm -hmm. ETFs were such a fabulous product that no one had really heard about at the time. They were very small in Australia. You know, I just looked at them and thought, this is an industry changer. This is going to change generationally how people invest their money. But no one seems to have kind of latched on to this yet. And then I saw these businesses in the US. A lot of them still exist, like Betterment and Wealthfront and Personal Capital that had a similar idea that you could build for everyday people, you know, awesome professionally managed portfolios at a very low cost. And to me, it just seemed like a complete game changer for the industry. And it's not that long ago that um, this was happening and people didn't really know what ETFs were and what part they could play in a portfolio. No. And I, and I mean, that was a very sad thing for me back in 2012, 13. I think at the time, the ETF industry in Australia was only about $8 billion. Yeah. You know, now it's over 150. So enormous growth. And, you know, the overall industry hasn't grown by very much at all. You know, I, I could understand why more people weren't investing in them. And from working at UBS, I could see that in a lot of big organizations, you know, there was certainly a lot more financial incentive to be selling the idea of picking stocks or paying fund managers to pick stocks. And really in the industry, that's where all the margin is for financial professionals. But yeah, I started reading up more around the concept of indexing, the mathematics behind indexing and that the market is a, you know, really a zero sum game. And if you are actively picking stocks, if you're a winner, there has to always be a loser. And it just sort of resonated with me that this was a smarter way for the masses to to get their money invested and ultimately keep more of the return for themselves, you know, rather than the finance industry becoming very wealthy, you know, that wealth could be, you know, more fairly distributed. There's so many fees is there in there in the financial advice. It's okay if you've got a lot of money, but if you haven't. Well, it's even worse if you have a lot of money. Why would you want to yeah. pay a lot of fees if you've got a lot of money? I think yeah. there's this idea, probably in a lot of areas of life, that if you pay more, you get more. Mm. You know, if you go to a high-end retail shop, certainly you can get higher quality handbag if you pay more money. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people with a lot of wealth expect that if they have a lot of money, they need to go and pay a lot of money to a financial advisor and they'll get, you know, some sort of extra service or extra, you know, extra returns it's a fallacy I just wanted to kind of break to show that actually finance is this one industry that the more you pay, the less you get. Mm. You know, it's like the emperor's, you know, emperor's new clothes. Like you realize very soon that there's there's nothing there when you're paying all of this money for the, the most extravagant advice and, and it's just not necessary. 
So there's a lot of questions I want to ask you about um, the portfolios and StockSpot's investing methodology. But um, just tell us about StockSpot straight off now. What is it for listeners who haven't heard of you? Yeah, so StockSpot was, I mean, in Australia, the first robo-advisor, and and I can explain what that is in a moment. And we help to build and manage portfolios for people to grow their wealth. As it happens, those portfolios contain exchange-traded funds, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And it's Um, only only ETFs, isn't it, that you... It is, but I think it's a misconception that we can only invest in ETFs. Ultimately, we're regulated like a financial advisor, Mm. but we only invest in ETFs because we think it's the best thing for clients. So if we thought there were some funds out there or some stocks we should be investing in, we could do that. But there is just so much information and evidence that shows that it's not the right way to do things that we just stick to ETFs. So it's one of these misconceptions in the industry that the more simple someone's investment strategy, it's sort of dumb or it's not going to earn good returns. Our portfolios are extraordinarily simple, And yet we've been able to prove that the returns can do better than 90% of the professionals out there that people are paying a lot of fees for. So yeah, we manage ETF portfolios and really for average people, we try and make it very convenient and easy so they can get on with their lives, you know, enjoy their retirement, spend more time with their kids, you know, spend more time with their jobs rather than be glued to a computer screen trying to work out whether they should be buying BHP or Commonwealth Bank or, you know, whether they should be investing with Magellan or Platinum. We just try and take away all the complexity and give people a good result. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Part of traditional financial advice is getting a statement of advice, but you provide a statement of advice. How do you do that for basically no fees? Yeah, we do. I mean, so it was one of the differences between us and probably some of these global robo-advisors is Mm. um, a lot of those global providers don't actually provide personal advice to each client. And it is still a self-select sort of service. And there are others in Australia that still have this more self-select portfolio service. We thought it was really important not only to give an option of different portfolios, but actually to direct clients of which portfolio we think they should invest in because we think getting that right is really important. And, you know, it was a mistake I saw happening a lot is that people want to earn the highest returns, but if their investment horizon is too short, they end up taking too much risk. Mm. And then they can't, you know, withstand market turbulence and end up selling at the wrong point. And so we're pretty conservative in how we recommend portfolios. If someone tells us, I'm only looking to invest for three or four years, we're not going to tell them to put 90% of their money in shares because we think that's irresponsible. And we think their chance of actually getting the result they want isn't that high. And and so it's more like gambling over that time period. So we're very particular in how we recommend what people should be investing in. And as part of that, we actually provide a statement of advice, which we and the client sign off on. The benefit for the clients is that, you know, in providing advice, we are also regulated like a financial advisor. So we have to meet best interest duty, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that we can't take commissions from products and we have to act only in the client's best interest. Um, And I think, you know, that's something people still, even after the Royal Commission, haven't got their heads around fully that, 
you know, it's not just financial advisors who um, were providing advice that was, you know, clouded by product commissions, but, you know, there's all sorts of trading platforms out there that are pushing products that they're getting commissions from. So, you know, a good example is a lot of stockbrokers still are pushing hybrids on investors, and it's largely because they earn a big fee from selling these. Really? To I, didn't, I didn't understand that, that, that um, there's a fee from hybrids. Yeah, and I mean, I saw it with my parents. They'd often get their bank manager, and I, mm. I mean, they didn't even have a private wealth manager, but it was some bank manager always pushing the latest hybrid that their bank was um, selling. And, you know, that bank manager didn't even understand the risks or where hybrids sat in the capital structure. They they were just highly motivated to sell that security to my parents because they were earning a big juicy fee off it. And the fee for hybrids was enormous. When you think of these things are sold as very safe, almost fixed income like securities to earn a commission of one or one and a half percent is enormous because people are mm. putting millions of dollars into these things. And I just thought it was wrong that people are getting pushed not only by advisors, but by brokers into certain investment strategies. Just to explain to listeners, what is a hybrid? It's an unusual type of security that sort of fits somewhere between equity and debt. Um, and it has characteristics of both. But ultimately, you earn a coupon. And it's usually a bank that's issuing these. Yeah, most commonly in Australia, a bank. Like, you know, when I first started looking at them and trading them back in 2007, you know, hybrids, there was all sorts of companies issuing, you know, these sorts of securities. These days, it's mainly the banks. And it's to raise capital, isn't it? It's to raise capital in a way that for the banks, it's a good quality of capital, you know, that allows them to, you know, lend out and, and... manage their balance sheet in a cost-effective way. Mm. And for investors, they look appealing because the interest rate you earn off them is certainly higher than what you get in a bank or a term deposit. But they also come with a set of risks. And under certain circumstances, they convert into equity. Mm. So you turn from becoming someone that's earning like a fixed yield every year to a shareholder in Commonwealth Bank or BHP or you know whatever company it is that's issuing these hybrids. And so... There's definitely businesses out there that have sophisticated modeling and can understand what they're worth. But for the average person, you know, if you think bonds or shares are complex, these things take complexity to a whole new level. Mm. And it's difficult to understand whether they're valuable or not. And often the risks are misunderstood. So cruising through the website, the Stockspot website, I was interested to hear about this this figure of um, in the 1970s, there were only 5,000 fund managers on the planet. Now there's a million. Is that a conservative estimate? I'm sure there might even be more than a million. Well, yeah, I would guess after the the influx of new traders since 2020 and probably a lot more people considering themselves fund managers. And I I think the point that you are making is that the amount of people that are actually forensically inspecting stocks means that there's so much information out there that no one has any kind of competitive advantage in picking those stocks. That's exactly right. In the 70s, it was a bit of a, you know, an ascent sort of industry. There weren't many people um, involved in understanding balance sheets and shares. And, you know, there was an opportunity as well because there were these smarts that were doing all the work and they tended to make the money off the, you know, retail people that didn't understand things. And and so there was a transfer of money from the, the dumb money, so to speak, to the smart money mm-hmm. these days, you know, 99% of all trades that happen on share markets is just the smart money trading against the smart money. So, yeah, yeah. you know, with the analogy of poker, you're sitting at a poker table and everyone is a poker shark. <laughs> and so it's very hard to make the easy dollars. Yeah. And ultimately, luck becomes a much bigger factor. 
you know, every fund manager out there is very smart. They've all been very well trained in understanding discounted cash flows mm-hmm. and trying to understand, um, you know, intrinsic value. The other problem is that the share market can stay wildly overvalued or undervalued for long periods of time and may never revert to what, you know, these fund managers believe is their, you know, model-based intrinsic value. So these days, it's just very hard to consistently pick stocks and beat everyone else just because competition is so high. Yeah. And so many fund managers have got a theory or a a strategy they depend on. And that strategy might be out of fashion, like value for many years. Yeah, for sure. And and yeah, I mean, every fund manager also has their own model based on their own sort of arbitrary assumptions. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, I think fund managers wrongly are overconfident in their own assumptions. And, and often those assumptions don't turn out to be right. Yeah, that's why I think, I mean, investing in the index is such a humble way of investing because it's basically a way yeah. of accepting you don't know. You can't time the market. You can't pick the right shares. But ultimately, the market decides in a pretty good way. Does that mean that shares don't get overvalued or undervalued? No. But the difficult thing these days is actually working out how to profit from that. And shares can stay wildly overvalued or undervalued for just such a long period that there aren't many people out there that can consistently profit from it. Yep. What's the truth about diversification? Because now with ETFs, you can get um, invested into different asset classes, but I don't think people understand the importance of those different asset classes. And listeners must probably know that I geek out all the time about asset allocation because I don't think people actually understand what these different assets mean to a portfolio. And even when they're looking at their super balance to see where their money's being deployed. Yeah. I mean, maybe if if we kind of go back a step to the basics of diversification, the idea of diversifying is so that you have a portfolio that provides, in simple terms, smoother returns, you know, and smoother returns across different environments because different components of your portfolio are moving at different directions at different times. They call that uncorrelated risk, don't they? Yeah. I mean, things can be correlated or uncorrelated or negatively correlated, but ultimately they're just moving in different directions. Mm. and, And, you know, over the long run, they might all be drifting up, but over shorter periods, you know, things go in different different directions and give you a better, you know, in finance lingo, we call it quality of returns. Yeah. And so, you know, you may not own the highest return and actually in most cases you won't by diversifying, you know, it's one of the features of diversification that you should not earn the highest returns, but you also won't earn the lowest returns. (laughs) You'll never earn the lowest returns. And actually you'll get a nice blend of the different returns of different assets. To give an example of our portfolios, the the Aussie share market, let's say over the long run, has returned somewhere between 10 and 11% per year. Our you know, highest risk portfolio might have earned 9 or 10, so a little bit less, but has had half of the risk. Mm. So when the market fell 35% in early 2020, it only fell by half. So you don't have to sacrifice a lot in returns to really take a lot less risk. And I think that's really beneficial, particularly when markets are volatile. It's a lot harder to swallow and have that conversation with your partner when your portfolio has fallen 35% or your super has fallen 35%. It's a lot easier if the dip might be 10% or 15% to continue to be confidently invested. So in real person's terms, diversification is about being able to be more confidently invested, you know, in all types of market environment. And what's the place of bonds and gold? 
in these uh, portfolio allocations? Well, so yeah, in all of our portfolios, we have an allocation to bonds, you know, government bonds and gold. So just government bonds, not corporate bonds. Yeah, government and high quality corporate bonds, actually. So a combination of of high grade bonds. The bond ETF follows an index that's been around for a long time, but you're not buying one bond Mm -hmm. because that's risky because, you know, if that company goes belly up, then you lose all your money. You're spreading your money across lots of different companies' bonds and obviously local governments and state governments and, you know, Commonwealth government, as well as the gold ETF is a little bit different. You just own physical gold bars that are stored in a vault in London. I know. I love Um, that. (laughs) So you don't get to touch the the bars and you don't get to visit them, but Mm -hmm. you know, they're audited and you can know that they're there. Look, these are two defensive assets that play similar, but I'd say also different roles. So, you know, bonds are an asset that tends to go well in a certain market environment, usually when inflation is low and growth is low. Mm. Um, And, you know, definitely over the last 30 years, it's an asset class that has done quite well as interest rates around the world have fallen, you know, in a lot of developed markets. But typically bonds will move in an opposite direction and not day to day, but they'll often move in an opposite direction to shares, you know, because when an economy is going well, it's usually the way that interest rates are getting increased over that period. You know, shares are usually doing all right and then bonds aren't doing very well. And and conversely, when, you know, an economy is struggling, interest rates are probably getting cut, you know, monetary policy is getting eased to make things easier for businesses and consumers and shares might be doing poorly, but bonds are doing well. So they tend to counterbalance each other. But then there's environments where bonds and shares don't counterbalance each other. And actually this last quarter, this sort of first quarter of 2022 has been a good example of that because we're now in an environment of high inflation and that high inflation is causing interest rate expectations to go up. It's actually been the worst quarter for government bonds in the last 30 years. Yeah, I never understand that. You know, interest rates go up and bonds go down. I, I think it's that that inverse law or inverse rule, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way I think to think about that is that as a bondholder, you get a, a coupon and that coupon is fixed. Like the interest rate, isn't it? Or the, the interest rate. The distribution, yeah. But if, if the prevailing interest rate in the market is going up, then those mm. bonds become less attractive because on a relative basis, you might as well just put your money in the bank yep. or buy new bonds that are getting issued. And that's what's happening at the moment over the last few months in Australia. Investors sell those bonds. Exactly. Yeah. They sell their okay. bonds and, and and go and buy the you know, other more attractive bonds or leave the money in the bank. And mm-hmm. so over the last quarter, for instance, we've seen bonds fall something like 5 to 6%, mm. you know, which doesn't sound like a lot in the share market world, but in bond world, that is a big That's fall. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's because interest rate expectations over the next few years have increased by 2%, mm. which is you know unheard of to expect that interest rates by the end of 2023 in Australia are going to be over 3%. I don't think many people fully understand and appreciate the impact that's going to have, Mm. but already it's had an impact on bonds. You know, shares haven't really gone up a lot over that period. A lot of the growth in shares already happened last year. The Australian share market's up a little bit over this quarter, and it's definitely done better than global share markets, but they don't always counterbalance each other in periods of high inflation. And that tends to be an environment where gold has done better. So gold tends to do well in an environment of low growth and high inflation. And that's different to bonds or shares. And that's why that's one of the assets we keep in our portfolios, because my view is that no one can predict what sort of economic environment you're going to be in tomorrow or in a year's time. 
And so the most robust portfolio you can create is one that can withstand lots of different environments. Mm. You know, are you going to be high growth, high inflation, low growth, low inflation, high growth, low inflation, etc.? You know, at some point over the next 10 years, you'll probably be in each of those sectors and there's going to be some asset that's doing really well and some that's not doing as well, you know, rather than try and guess in advance which asset that's going to be. You know, our viewers just don't know all of them. You'll get a much smoother ride, but you do have to accept that at any point in time, there's going to be something that's not doing well and yep. something that's doing well. So when someone gets their statement of advice and they talk about their risk profile and what their aims are, this is how you work out how to weight the portfolio, how much is going to be in shares, international shares, bonds, gold, and so forth? Yeah, that's right. The theory is that if you can understand someone's capacity to take risk, then you can build a portfolio that's going to give them the best expected outcome. That's about how well they can sleep at night, is it? Yeah, exactly. So if someone tells you that if the market fell 10%, they're going to sell everything and never invest again, that's really good information to know. Do do people really know that until it actually happens? No, and that's a great point that really like, this is really just a starting point in the education process. Because it is, people have got to learn what markets are all about and and, and long-term horizons. Yeah, totally. People, I think, you know, probably overestimate how assured they were f- would feel in a market downturn. Yeah. And it's actually really hard. And for people that haven't been through periods where the market's fallen 50%, you know, which happened in 2008 or 35% at the start of 2020, you know, you might think theoretically you'd be all right, but it has a huge emotional toll. Yeah. And, yeah. and that can lead to doing, you know, things you might not have thought you would have done. So, yes, we don't take the answers our clients give us when they sign up as as gospel. And certainly we see our role as educating them along the way. And, you know, the last quarter has been a good example. You know, we had a great year of returns last year, but the first quarter of 2022, you know, markets have gone up and down. There's been a bit of volatility. Returns haven't really been there. You know, people that are first time investors are understandably nervous. They're thinking, hey, what's going on? Like, is this normal? You know, should I be selling everything? You know, the job of a good advisor is to actually educate them and reassure them and say, hey, your goal is to buy that house in five years' time. Here it is written down on your statement. You yep. wrote it to us. You know, mm-hmm. have your goals changed? Because if your goals have changed, yes, maybe that is a reason why we might want to change your strategy. But if your goals haven't changed, then the best thing to do is to do nothing, just to keep on hold investing. Tight. Yeah. To hold tight. And it's it's tricky because when you lose money, you know, it hurts. It hurts everyone. And, and you know, I feel it. I'm sure you feel it when your portfolio falls it's hard not to kind of react emotionally and think that you need to do something. Mm. And the hardest thing usually to do is to do nothing. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on the rise of thematic ETFs? And do you think they'll ever play a part in stock spot portfolios? Um, So our portfolios are generally built with very vanilla index ETFs. So these Mm. are indexes that indices that follow the broad share market, ASX 300 or, you know, the top hundred shares in the world. You know, the benefit of this sort of process of building an index is there's always companies that aren't doing well that are getting dropped out, new companies that are getting built in. And it creates this, you know, effect of a portfolio that's always containing the, you know, the biggest and and best performing companies in the share market. There's a lot of theory that supports this way of investing. And really a lot of the early ETFs kind of followed this style. Definitely the pendulum has swung over the last couple of years where most of the new ETFs getting issued are following more niche um, ideas or, or sectors or parts of the market. So rather than investing in the whole market, you might just be investing into battery companies or into a specific part of the tech sector. 
Now, in my mind, this is, you know, bringing ETFs a little bit back towards the world of stock picking, where people are trying to predict the future, trying to think that one sector is going to do better than others. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of information that shows that one, it's very difficult to do. Most professionals can't and most regular investors can't either. And actually, you're more likely to get swept up in FOMO or getting excited by things that are in the news a lot or that you're reading about. And usually by the time something's getting written about in the newspaper a lot as a big trend or a secular trend, it's too late. Mm. And so there's some great research that's been done into these thematic ETFs not only in Australia, but around the world, that shows that when they launch, they tend to do badly for the next few years. And this makes a lot of sense because they're usually launched to satisfy the appetite of investors who are reading all these news articles and thinking, oh, I've got to get onto this trend. But by the time they do, everyone already knows about the trend and therefore that information isn't valuable anymore. And we see this time and time again in Australia. You know, I remember writing some of our ETF research back in 2015. At that point, dividend ETFs were all the rage. Mm. You know, there was about half a dozen that got launched within a short period of time. And that's because it was a period where Telstra was going really well. Banks are doing well. Everyone wanted dividends. And that was the peak of that trend. So for the next four or five years, dividend shares did horrendously. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same's happened over the last year or so. There's been a, you know, a huge wave of new ETFs being launched around cryptocurrency or, you know, technology trends, Asian technology giants. Usually, unfortunately, and it's something that I think, you know, listeners should be aware of, when there's a lot of products getting launched in a certain area, it's a bit of a red flag that that area is already hot. <laughs> and, and probably, you know, not one worth putting extra focus on in the short term. And that doesn't mean that these technology companies won't do fantastically over the long run, or even the cryptocurrency companies, they absolutely can. But usually it's an indicator that it, they're at their peak of of excitement in the short term, and they're probably going to go through a period of disappointment over the next few years at least. And so, you know, what we say to clients is if you do particularly want to invest in these thematic ETFs, try and invest in them in a way that takes advantage of this information. So rather than investing on day one when they launch and when you read about them and when these ETF issuers are bombarding you with advertising of why you should buy them, like wait a couple of years, be patient. Mm. And and when no one's talking about them, that might be the right time to buy. Chris Brikey, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.